You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see everyone. My name is David, one of the pastors here, and I'm going to sneak in an announcement, because <laughs> I can, because I'm up here. <laughs> this is what I always do. Uh, do you know we have a men's retreat coming up? Yeah, we do have a men's retreat. Gord, we do have a men's retreat on uh, April 8th to 10th. Now, here's the thing. It's been like two years since we can go anywhere, and now you get to go all the way to Hope. Yes. Okay, it's a first step before you go to Hawaii. Um, it's, you know, baby steps, right? So, um, yeah, so that's coming up on April 8th to 10th. We have an early bird rate uh, after Mar- Oh, today's the day. Actually, I didn't even know that. Okay, so today's the day. So if you sign up today, it's like super cheap. Um, tomorrow, it's, it's up a little bit. But here's the thing. If you sign up tomorrow, I will give you the early bird rate. <laughs> All right? Now, I know guys. I know guys like, yeah, I should really go. And, and it would be like April 13th. It's like, when, when is that coming up? Okay. All right, so let's sign up, okay? Don't leave me hanging. Sign up as soon as you can. Okay, that's, that's it for my advertisement. Maybe you have some other ones. No, that's it. We are actually carrying on in a series called God of All Things. And it's been fun. I, I think it's been quite fun. We've been exploring the character of God, who he is, what he's like, by looking at the things he has made. And we've looked at a few things so far, right? We've looked at pigs. We've looked at... Um, uh, dust, we've looked at salt. Last week, what did we look at? Honey. honey, did anybody do the liturgy of honey this week? <laughs> yes, okay, good. Well, today, what we're going to look at is gardens, gardens. Now, we're going to look at this just when we may be able to say that we are finally, finally on the tail end of COVID. Can, can, can we say that? It, it, will I jinx it by saying that? Knock on, knock on wood. Yeah, my last name's Wood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> There's no other wood. But it's weird because you think about it like it was two years ago. Two years ago around now. I remember two years ago, my family and I were in Lafarge Park. We were playing bocce ball or something like that. And, and, these motorcycles, uh, police come onto the, into the park saying the park's closed because of the pandemic. That was two years ago. But it does look like, it does look like, we hope, that we're coming to an s- end of a strange period in our life. And I, I think here's a challenge. Here's a challenge. I think it's generally a good spiritual practice to look back on a time period and reflect on what we've learned during a different season of life. And the season of, uh, if we can call it that, the season of COVID stretched us in ways probably we've never, been ex- we've never experienced before. And so in recent months, I've been reflecting on what good things came out of COVID. Now, the bad things are easy to come up with, but what good things came out of it? 
Say that? No, say Gaining more weight, yes. <laughs> Putting on the COVID-19, that's what they're called. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, actually, let me hear from you. Well, any good things that came out of COVID? Sorry? Okay, yes. We, we don't take in-person gatherings for granted anymore. Absolutely. Very good, yeah. Unity. Unity, yeah, especially in light of how divisive COVID was. Yeah, we value the importance of unity for sure. So not a lot, right? <laughs> okay, one of the things, like for us, I mean, one of the things when COVID hit, like our families were all together, like our entire family was together. We had meals together as families, and we hadn't had that for a while. Um, the other thing is... Sometimes during, uh, and I've heard this from different people, during COVID, new hobbies were started up, right? Now, I started a new hobby during COVID. And one of the hobbies that I took up was gardening. Now, I say this with a lot of trepidation because I know that when it comes to gardening, man, I just have like a white belt. And there are some fourth-degree black belt gardeners in our midst. I know, I, can, I, know, I know who you are, right? Because I've asked you lots of questions. Um, in fact, I haven't, pretty much all I've learned about gardening is that sun and water are pretty important. Um, and and when, when I don't understand something, I use my gardening app. I just scan the plant. It tells me how to take care of it. So that's kind of handy. But I've learned to love gardening. And, you know, as, as I've, um, you know, dipped my toe in the pool of, of, of gardening, um, I've learned some things. And one of the things that I've learned, I've been drawn to characteristics of God that either I had not understood or, or simply ignored. And so looking at gardening, I've come to understand God in a deeper way. Now, just saying that may cause some people to bristle. Um, some people, and I've heard people say this, you know, why, why, why can't we just enjoy gardening without bringing God into it? Honestly, just gardening's gardening, God is God, let's keep, the, keep them separate. There was a guy named Richard Dawkins, who's a well-known atheist, and he wrote a book in 2006 called The God Delusion. And among many things, he just kind of goes after Christians for what he would call their absurd beliefs, their mental illness, that's what he says. And in the epigraph of his book, there's an interesting quotation by a guy named Douglas Adams, and it says this, quote, Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it, too? And you see his point. His point is like, why can't we just enjoy gardens without talking about God? And, you know, I would agree with Adams. I would agree with, with, um, with Dawkins. You can appreciate gardens without bringing God into it. You can appreciate gardens without having to suppose that there are fairies hidden in them. But here's my question. Do not gardens, by their very nature, make it easier to believe in God? 
I mean, do not gardens help us to imagine a realm of reality where there may exist a designer to the gardener, to the gardens? And the reason why we have beautiful gardens, like Van Dusen Gardens in uh, Vancouver, Bouchard Gardens in Victoria, the David Wood Backyard Estates in Coquitlam, <laughs> is because instead of a wasteland, there is a presence of gardeners. And, and actually, you know, Dawkins and, and Adams, their, their argument is kind of self-defeating because the very fact that you have a garden pre, pre, presupposes a gardener, right? Someone, like, why does this garden exist? Why these flowers and not those flowers? Why this design? It implies that there is a gardener, a grand gardener behind the gardens. And in the same way, there could be a designer behind creation. So we're going to look at gardens today. And not surprisingly, gardens feature throughout the Bible. In fact, we find a garden right at the very beginning. And that's what I want to start with. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Right at the very first book in the Bible, right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 5. In honor of God's word, let's stand together as we read this. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the, on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man on whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work, to work it and to keep it. Lord, this is your word. And you are the grand designer. You are the great gardener. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. A heart to receive from you and the courage to respond to what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at gardens. And we learn right from the beginning of Scripture um, that gardens are places of God's presence and abundance. That's the first point. Gardens are places of God's presence and, ab and abundance. We read in Genesis 2 that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. We read that the garden is abundant with trees, fruit, vegetables, flowers, rivers, minerals, precious stones, gold, birds, animals, human beings, marriage, sex, life, and the very presence of God himself. And the garden is a fruitful place. 
it offers up more than you can see and even more than you can expect. And I, I mean, that's one of the things I've learned of, about gardening is just how much you can produce in a very small piece of land. Um, I've, I've planted my, uh, and, you, and you may be wondering why I plant this because some of you really don't like kale, but I've planted my kale, my arugula, my lettuce, my spinach already, and it's already starting to grow. But one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that the world that God has created is an abundant world. It's an abundant world. That the world is not fundamentally a place of limited resources. This is important. This is so important. The world that God has created is abundant. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to have this vision of abundance rather than getting caught up in the scarcity narrative. Because what we're told, what we're told in this world is, hey man, there's only so many resources to go around and so you better grab hold of as much as you can because there's only so much. There's a limited amount of resources. And I've talked to people, I've talked to people who say, yeah, we're not going to have children. We don't want to have children because, you know, there's way too many people in this world anyhow. And, and one of the results of this, and you see this um, in Europe, um, in places like the Netherlands, over half of the households in the Netherlands only have one person in the family. People are not having children. The families are disappearing because of the scarcity na uh, narrative. That there's only a limited amount. But that's actually not how God created the world. There is scarcity, but that's a result of sin. But how God created the, this world is unbelievable abundance. Incredible abundance. And we can talk about this more, but this, this is huge. So we need to remember that, that God is a God of abundance, not of scarcity. Because when we think about scarcity, we get afraid. And when we're afraid, we try to control. And when we try to control, we often go to war. In the Bible, right from the beginning, what we find is a garden. Interesting, one of the words for garden is this word paradisos. That's where we get the word paradise. And so in Genesis, we get this picture of God planting a garden, placing humanity in the midst of it, and then walking alongside his creation in the cool of the day. In this narrative, God is revealing something about himself, that there's a connection between his creativity, this beautiful, abundant design of the garden, his love, why he planted it in the first place, his provision and his presence. The garden is simply overflowing with life, with love, with fellowship, abundance, beauty, and harmony between God's creation and himself, and with, between creation itself. And the garden is interesting. In the garden was a temple. The garden in itself was a temple. Because you think about what is a temple. A temple is the meeting place between humanity and God. And <laughs> Did I set off somebody's phone? I've done that before where I say sorry and Suri starts to answer me. 
See, the garden is a temple, and throughout the rest of Scripture, the temples will be gardens. Do you know that? And this may come as a surprise, because when you think of temples, you don't think, well, I don't think of a garden. I think of, you know, some, some stone building. But actually, if you study the design of the tabernacle and the temple in the Bible, and you can because there's a lot of detail given about how it's made, how it's designed, you're going to encounter a lot of garden imagery. You know that? Here's some examples. Um, the temple is made out of cedar trees, carved from the form of gourds and open flowers. The floor is boarded with cypress. We read that in 1 Kings 6. The temple is guarded by cherubim like Eden was. It was built on a mountain, entered from the east, and adorned with gold and onyx, which we read in 1 Chronicles 29. The doors of the sanctuary were made of olive wood, carved with palm trees and flowers and bloom, 1 Kings 6. The bronze pillars are covered with hundreds of pomegranates on tops of pillars was like lily work. The panels was set with livestock and wild beasts. As you walk across the court, you're surrounded by water, fresh water. There's a tree-shaped lamp stand outside the Holy of Holies, plus another ten made of pure gold. And the whole feel inside the temple was a feel of a garden. This is really important. And it would serve to remind Israel of the ancient truth that God is the God of the garden. And also the ancient truth that you and I are welcome. But, but gardens are not just places of God's presence and his abundance. Gardens, secondly, are places of love and romance. Now, if you've been to a wedding, you know this. <laughs> I mean, that garden imagery is still around today, right? You think about if you go to a wedding, what do you usually see? Well, you see an arch, right? Um, there's usually an archway. There's lots of flowers. There's bouquets. There's garlands. There's, there's boutonnieres, which are really hard to pin in. Um, there's, you know, what do you put down the aisle? You put petals down the aisle, right? Um, why? Well, because gardens are really romantic. Gardens are places of love and romance. Which kind of makes sense because you've, you, you see that love first expressed itself in a garden. The first marriage and the first love song took place in a garden. See Genesis 2. Many biblical couples in the Bible, you, you, they get together in garden-like places, under trees or by wells. Uh, they, you read the most romantic book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, the You'll find it's full of plants, of, of trees, of flowers and orchards, fruit, fountains and gardens. It reminds us of God's intimacy with his people and the intimacy we can experience with one another. And so gardens are places of love and romance. But this third thing, gardens are also places of tragedy. Because the garden was a place of paradise, yes, but we can't forget that the garden was also the place where paradise was lost. The garden was where the man and the woman rebelled against God's loving rule and reign, and they tried to make themselves as the ultimate reference for what is right and what is wrong. It was a garden where love was spurned, where marriage was spoiled, where we go from abundance to scarcity. where we find thorns, weeds, 
Think of morning glory. You ever seen that weed? What a, what a, what a misnomer, morning glory, right? It just grows, it gets everywhere. Anyway. Thistles. And, and what happens in the garden is that the mission that God gave humanity was broken, was tragically broken. Because you know what? We were supposed to take the characteristics of the garden, harmony, abundance, the presence of God. We were to take that wherever we went. We were to, to represent the glory of God wherever we went. And, 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 and make a world, fill the world with life and harmony. But instead, it's all broken. It's all broken. And we are exiled from the garden. We are barred from re-entry because of our sin and rebellion against the great gardener. And from that day forward, we lost the unrestricted access we had to God's power and presence. We lost it in the garden. And the story of Israel is a story of rather than being a light to the nations, Israel rejects God and his ways. And, and, and you see that even Israel is exiled from God's presence and power from the garden temple. And the story of humanity, and maybe the story of your life, has been the story of trying to get back to the garden. Because in our hearts, we know there's something missing. In our hearts, there's this longing for something more. There's this restlessness. And it's this desire to get back to the garden. But we cannot get back on our own. And that's why this next picture of the garden is so important. Because the reality is, is we've been invited back to the garden. Because gardens are also places of redemption. Gardens are places of redemption. And our access back to the garden was secured through two instances that both took place in gardens. What's the first one? Garden of Gethsemane. Exactly. Well, what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, we have Jesus, the Messiah, God's only son, the last Adam. The last Adam. Jesus replaces the first Adam's, not your will, but mine be done with not my will, but yours be done. And it was in the first garden, it was in, in this first garden where, where Jesus wrestled with what had to be done. He felt the weight of what lay ahead of him. He felt the weight of, of his impending torture and his death on the cross. He anticipated what he was being asked to do, namely to bear the sins of the world in order for you and I to experience forgiveness and freedom. So the first instance takes place in this garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The second, the second instance also takes place in a garden. But it's a garden where there's a tomb. And in front of the tomb, there was a stone, but the stone had been rolled away. And the one who had been crucified, who had died for the sins of the world, had not stayed dead, but was resurrected. And the stone was rolled away, and the resurrected Jesus Christ stepped out of the tomb. And in that garden, the consequences of Eden were forever reversed. Whereas Adam, back in Genesis 3, saw, brought separation from God and death to everyone in a garden, and then he goes to hide. 
we find the last Adam, Jesus Christ, whose obedience on the cross brought reunion to our Creator. And Jesus makes himself visible to everyone. And it's interesting. It's, it's really interesting because in, in this, it, the first person that Jesus reveals himself to after his resurrection was a woman named Mary. Right? But she doesn't recognize this Jesus. What does she think? Who does she think this person is? A gardener. Now, in many ways, she's right. She's absolutely right. Because that's exactly who Jesus is. It's interesting, when Jesus was hanging on a cross, he told the thief next to him, one of the thieves, that if they trust in him, that he would be rescued. And the thief asked Jesus to remember him, and Jesus says, remember. He says, this day you will be with me in paradisos, paradise. And so in Jesus, you and I are invited into the abundance, the vitality of a new and better Eden. There's no longer cherubim blocking our way. The serpent has been crushed. The garden of love is open, which leads us to this last picture of a garden. See, the garden is a place of renewed hope. And it's interesting, when you get to the end of the Bible, to the final two chapters of the entire Bible, it's a bit of a deja vu. But with important differences. At the very end of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, we are given a vision of our future. And the vision of the future is a city. But not just any city. Notice what it is. It is a garden city. It is a garden city. And so that longing for home that you have experienced in your life, this longing that somehow this is not right, but I long to be home, whatever that is, this longing is fulfilled. This longing to return to a lost paradise, to Eden, is fulfilled. But with a difference. Because at the very end of history, it is a return to Eden, but not really Eden. It's better. It's much better. We find this garden city. And because the description is quite powerful. It says there's a, a river that runs through it. There are trees with leaves and fruit. There's an abundance and flourishing everywhere we look. There's gold. There's onyx. There's the garden city. There's the river of the water of life stemming from the throne of God and from the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And we find... In this garden city, what else do we find? We find a tree, a tree of life that had been forbidden to Adam and Eve, but now is available to everyone. What else do we find? A wedding. The bridegroom and the church in the new city, in this garden city, we will love as we are loved. And what else do we find in this garden city? We find God himself. He will be with his people and we will be with him. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no need for a temple. Why? Because the whole thing is a temple. 
The new heavens and the new earth is a temple. And God is present in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and his presence is so glorious that there's no need for sun or moon, we read. And we're told that we will see his face. How can we see his face? Well, we will have changed. Something will have happened to us in this garden. We will have changed. We will have been glorified. So much so that we can behold God's face and see his glory and live. We don't have to run. We don't have to hide. There is no more shame. He will be our God and we will be with his people. Now, my friends, this is our future. Do you believe this? It's so rich. It's so earthy. It's so abundant. I get so tired of people describing heaven as boring, sitting on a cloud playing a harp. No. In fact, I saw this funny cartoon, and it's these two, two men with wings sitting on a harp, or sitting on, on clouds playing a harp, and they said, oh, I thought hell would be less ironic, because <laughs> they're actually in hell. <laughs> this is a picture of life. It is a picture of, of, of the fullness of life. And it's described, one more thing, it says, here, there's no more curse. There's no more curse. In Genesis 3, we read that even the ground was cursed. It no longer yielded fruit, but without, without toil or sweat. Relationships were cursed, and there was scarcity. Oh, there's no scarcity. There shall no longer be any curse. As Isaac Watts puts it, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow, far as the curse is found. And so this is a new beginning. That's what I love about the end of the Bible. It's not an ending. It's not, and they live happily ever after the end. It's a new beginning that will go on forever. And it's a beginning... It's a world where we are set free from slavery, from futility, from frustration. Anybody feeling frustrated these days? It's a place where there's flourishing and an abundant garden. And in this garden, you're going to find some interesting plants. You don't need a nap. You can identify them. And we will find ourselves that we will be the men and women that we were meant to be. And that is why I think that gardens are such wonderful things that is made by the God of all things. It's a beautiful picture of our future. Does that make sense? All right, well, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace that you have come to set the captives free. And that longing that we have in our heart, that longing for home, is a longing that you have placed in our hearts. And we know that, Jesus, you are our home. Because in the one garden you said, not my will, but yours be done. And you died the death that we should have died. But you did not stay dead 
in the garden, the stone was rolled away. And you step forth into glorious brightness of the day. And now in and through you, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are new creations. And we know because you defeated death that in you, when we put our faith in you, that death will not have the final word, but eternal life, flourishing abundance and glory. And your presence lies ahead of us. And so we hold on to this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.